Tonight's share is an elaboration of the podcast share which I gave earlier in the week. Parsha Shmos is neatly arranged and organized to correspond to a particular segment of the Itzias Mitzrayim story. And that is the period of slavery. Throughout our parsha, there's slavery, and even the final passage in the parsha, Moshe's attempt to be the Messiah, you might say. Moshe's attempt to be the Redeemer at the end of our parsha, boomerangs and failure. So our parsha deals with struggle. Next week's parsha, for Eira, on the other hand, from the inception of Eira, is a parsha of triumph, is the parsha of the Ten Makos. So our parsha is dealing with that issue, that great existential issue, the issue of suffering. And what we are going to see tonight is the timelessness of our parsha, how our parsha deals with the issue of pain, tragedy, and the human condition with a relevance in all circumstances and all settings. So to begin, let's discuss the issue of suffering and then how it relates to our parsha. One of the most troubling issues in the human condition is the notion of suffering. The experience of human suffering is particularly vexing to the believer in Hashem. After all, The basic conception of a loving God is challenged and seems to be contradicted by the pain we see in front of us. This question so confounds man that it oftentimes leads him to believe that there's another power at work, a counterforce of evil, dueling with Hashem. This confusion has given rise to various theologies throughout the ages. Zoroastrianism, the ancient Persian religion, puts its trust in two deities. An actual god of evil balances the equation with the god of goodness. More recently, various Christian denominations envision a reality called the devil who hinders God's kingdom. In the modern era, secularism believes in the randomness of nature, which at times visits a cruel fate upon the innocent. All of these belief systems vary in tone and tenor, but they share a common core. Man's inability to reconcile suffering with a loving God drives him to conclude that there is another force at work. In essence, to preserve the wholeness of a loving God, they split off the evil component and attach it elsewhere. Yiddishkeit Judaism, however, is not overwhelmed by this question. The oneness of Hashem is a perfection that transcends human comprehension. That wholeness is absolute and cannot be shaken by our limited understanding. What we do know with clarity is that He is loving and that showering us with loving kindness is the ultimate objective He pursues. The wretched pain and suffering we see in front of us must be part of his master plan to bring forth a higher goodness for mankind, as difficult as that may be for us to understand. This truth becomes apparent at the time of Geula, 
from the vantage point of redemption, we can consider that the evil was not an absolute, not an end in itself. Hashem in his expanded perspective was pursuing a game plan larger than human perception. The notion of a counterforce of evil, a demon or devil opposing Hashem, now just melts away. The dragon is not slain, it simply dissolves. As we say in the tefillah of the Yom Noraim, the chol harisha kula ka'ashan techla, all wickedness will evaporate like smoke. The notion of the devil is actually a misimpression, a false interpretation of what lies behind the very real pain of human misery. To use a metaphor from modern parlance, the demon is like the bully who so terrifies his victim until his very weakness is exposed. Ramchal, in his classic work, Das Tfunos, expands the above idea, pointing out that at the time of Geula, a positive aspect to prior suffering becomes apparent. Through the benefit of hindsight, we are able to embrace the past in a redemptive perspective. We come to appreciate that the inspiring epiphany of Geula is only possible in the context of the Gullahs that preceded it. The suffering fed into the common misimpression that there is a counterforce of evil. The revelation dismissing that untruth is therefore all the more dramatic and conclusive. The Gullus has a role to play as the backdrop for this grand lesson. By enticing us to entertain the possibility of evil as a force separate from the force of goodness, the lesson can be better learned. The Gullus functions, literally speaking, as the devil's advocate, lobbying for the notion of the devil, separate from Hashem, only to prove just how false this idea is. Based on this understanding, the Ramchal explains the concept of Hevli Mashiach, the birth pangs of Mashiach, or what is poorly translated in English as the Armageddon. At the threshold of redemption, the suffering of exile becomes progressively worse in order to increase the dramatic revelation that will follow. It is only because the supposed counterforce of evil seemed to rear its ugly head in its full wanton glory immediately before the redemption that the repudiation of this fallacy is compelling and convincing. With this background... With this development of the Ramchal, how to come to grips with human suffering from a redemptive perspective, we can now deal with the final episode in our parsha, which is really the final episode in the story of the Gauls. When Moshe comes on the scene at the end of our parsha with the promise of freedom, his arrival actually yields an adverse effect. Paro responds by further oppressing B'nai Yisrael, by deriving them of building material to complete their task. Not only did their condition worsen, but Hashem, the God of Israel, in whose name Moshe spoke, seemed incapable of redeeming his people. In fact, Moshe himself is painfully confounded, deeply vexed and troubled. He questions Hashem, Lama Hariyosalamaza. Right at the tail end of our parasha, he says, Why have you done bad to this people? Why have you sent me? And the question is a good one. 
Indeed, why does Hashem play this charade of ineptness? If the time was not yet ripe for Yitzhak Mitzrayim, why does he send Moshe in the first place? But now we can understand this master stroke in the unveiling of Gula. In this final episode of Gula, before the tide shifts to Gula, Hashem purposefully creates the false impression that there are two opposing forces at work, Chas v'chalila. The imposter, the counterforce of evil, seems so validated. It seems, if we may say, that not only Paro, but some demonic force reigns supreme on his devilish throne. But actually, in truth, it is Hashem at work, allowing the spectator to reach a false conclusion in order to set the stage for the dramatic revelation which follows. All the grander will the wake-up call be when this misimpression is thoroughly debunked by the unfolding Ka'ula. This dynamic moment of transition comes out magnificently in the text itself, in the final Pasuk in our parasha. Hashem responds to Moshe's question with the statement, Now you will see that, what, with that, what, that which I will do to Paro. Now, it is only now, when the situation makes no sense and it seems as if Hashem faces hurdles and opposition, that we are ready for the astonishing revelation of Gula. The entire scope of wickedness experienced by B'nai Yisrael was but a smokescreen. B'nai Yisrael is primed to see that Hashem had always been present behind the curtain, directing a glorious outcome. The Gula would now be absolute and convincing. Immediately following this episode, which ends our parasha Shmos, the parasha of slavery, the parasha of salvation, next week's parasha, Ve'era begins. And it begins by heralding next week, the Arba Lashona Shal Go'ula, the four expressions of redemption, Ve'hotseisi Vitzalti Ve'galti Ve'lakachti. Moshe's mission would then be a resounding success. He would be a totally different figure than the one who was scoffed at in our Shemos fiasco. This metamorphosis of Moshe is conveyed elegantly in the text in next week's Parsha. Because before Moshe begins the Makos in next week's Parsha, the text traces his lineage along with his brother Aaron's, as though introducing them for the very first time. This is the Eila Rashi Matos B'nai Yisrael narrative in Shemot and Parshas of Eira Parak Vav Pasuk Yedalad. And it's a difficult passage to understand, this introducing Moshe and Aaron in Parshas of Eira by specifying their lineage. The brothers had already made their appearance on the stage of Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim in our Parshas Shemos. Why do they need a grand introduction at that time in next week's Parsha prior to the Makos? But now we get it. Isn't the Torah telling us that at that time, Va'era, they are in a sense new people, redeemers who will be a smashing success. Going forward, there will be no snags, no confusion as to who is in charge, no holdups in the unfolding drama. So what we see now, the failure of before, the failure at the end of our parasha is in fact not a failure. It was an intentional part of the performance. 
how much more exciting is the drama when the revelation takes off from this low point? This so-called wicked witch, force of evil, is now unmasked as a puppet of Hashem's design. So here we have a panoramic view of the Gullus Geula story as formulated by a careful development of the end of our parsha and the beginning of next week's parsha, which is a vast implication in terms of how we deal with Gullus Geula, suffering, and salvation in general. But tonight, from a parsha Shmos perspective, I want to particularly focus on the suffering end of the spectrum. The fact that in the time of suffering, Parsha Shmos, it really doesn't make any sense. The best Hashem could tell Moshe at the end of our Parsha is soon you will see. Atatera, hold on tight. And it becomes so apparent in next week's Parsha, the Parsha of Geula, looking back, that force of evil, that devilish force, of course, now it's so apparent was just a smokescreen. But that's an epiphany next week at the time of Geula. It's then that Moshe and Aaron assume the new persona as a success. But in our parasha, Moshe and Aaron, and by extension, all of the Jewish people feel and seem like failures. That is how our parasha ends, sensitizing us to the truth that it really does not make sense while we're still in it, while we're still in the belly of the beast while we're still amidst the turmoil and suffering. And we just hold on with Amuna. There is some master plan. There is a loving God here, though we can't understand it. And what I would like to do now, expanding on our development of the end of the Parsha, is to understand that the question which Moshe himself voices at the end of the parsha, I don't get it. What are you doing, Hashem? Why have you done bad to this people? That question is larger than its storyline. It's really the overarching message of Parsha Shmos. The entire Parsha Shmos, the Parsha of slavery, which precedes Moshe's question is screaming the question, Hashem, what are you doing? The where is God in Auschwitz question. And our parsha is validating for us. While we're amidst the suffering, we don't have the answer to that question. It's going to be so apparent in next week's parsha. It'll be so apparent at the time of deliverance, in hindsight, a different perspective. But right now, our parsha is all about embracing and recognizing it really does not make sense amidst the suffering, we hold on to our amuna nonetheless. And I found a magnificent find, really a magnificent midrasha clue to show that Moshe's question at the end of the parsha is really a question asked throughout the parsha, is really the greater experience of human suffering. The where is God in Auschwitz or where is God in Egypt question. Because there's a medrash cited by Rashi in the beginning of next week's parsha. When Hashem, at the time of Geula, says, Moshe, you were so quick to question me at the time of the Gaulus. 
And the interesting thing is, the Medrash, cited by Rashi, seamlessly segues from Moshe's question at the end of the parish after his failed mission, why have you done bad to this people? The Medrash seamlessly segues from that question back to a question which Moshe asked at the burning bush. In the words of Rashi's citation of the Medrash, as Hashem spoke of Moshe's question, he then said, you're asking me the question, Mashemo, what is God's name? Now, the question, Mashemo, what is God's name, was actually not the question which Moshe asked at the end of our parsha. The question which Moshe asked at the end of our parsha is, Lama Hariosa, Lama Lama why have you done bad to the people? Well, Rashi and the Medrash he's citing seamlessly segues from that question, why have you done bad to this people? To the question which Moshe asked on behalf of the Jewish people back at the burning bush in our parasha, Mashmo, what is God's name? Because the answer is, it's really the same question. The question which Moshe articulates at the end of the parasha, what are you doing, God? Why are you being so hard for us? Is actually the question being asked throughout the parasha, including back by the burning bush. When Moshe tells Hashem, you're sending me to the Jewish people in Egypt. And they're going to ask me, what is God's name, Mashamo? Well, I think what the Medrash is understanding that question is really is the same question Moshe later asks at the end of the parasha. What does God's name mean? How can we understand God amidst our suffering? Where is God in Auschwitz? Where is God in Egypt? We can't deal with God amidst the suffering. It's one question fused by Rashi because it is the overarching question throughout our parasha and its various narratives as they blend. So now, the question at the burning bush, Moshe says, Hashem, the Jewish people are going to ask, what is your name? becomes a very relevant question. It's the question we ask all the time when we suffer. Where is God? And therefore, we ought to study Hashem's response to that question that query. What is my name? It holds the key to finding God. When it doesn't make sense, when there's not going to be answers yet to why we're suffering. It's the time of Gaulus. It's not the hindsight perspective of Gaula. But nonetheless, there's a question, there's an answer how we can deal with God. The first answer which Hashem gives Moshe at the burning bush to the question where is God, i.e., as we're explaining it, and how do we deal with God? Where is God in Egypt? Where is God in Auschwitz? He says, I am with you in your gulfs. That is how the sages render God's first answer. You know what my name is? I am with you in gulfs. What Hashem is saying is, though you don't understand why you're suffering, Though it boggles your mind how the suffering you see in front of you can be congruent with a loving God. The mere knowledge that God is with me is really all that matters. That's really what we need at the time of Gullus. We don't per se need the theological answer, why do the good suffer? 
We're not equipped to answer that question of Mr. Gullis. But we can have an answer to the question, what is God's name, i.e., how could we conceptualize God? The knowledge that God is with us and we could cling to him and dive into him and find solace in him is magical, is redemptive. And it's really all that we need. When we open up our eyes and we could see Hashem amidst our pain, amidst our suffering, that really gives us the boost we need as much as we don't understand. I'm thinking of a story which Rabbits and Volba al-Ashalm used to say. She was a concentration camp survivor. And she was a young girl in Auschwitz. And she said, I, she felt Hashem in Auschwitz when her nails didn't grow. In other words, she did not have nail clippers or any sort of hygienic materials. And she said, notice, what would have I done if my nails grew? My nails didn't grow in Auschwitz. It was Hashem with me. Now, of course, we know the reason why her nails didn't grow. She was malnutritioned, Nabuch and Auschwitz. And apparently malnutritioned bodies do not grow nails. But she saw Hashem working through that scientific reality. That's how she saw Hashem in Auschwitz. And when I first heard the story, I didn't quite get, I didn't quite appreciate her. I was like, here you're suffering. And you're saying you you find solace, you come to completion with Hashem in Auschwitz because your nails aren't growing, a little petty banal concern when you're suffering under the smoke of Birkenau, Auschwitz-Birkenau. But now I'm understanding it. It's not really the theological answer of why the good suffer, which we need or we're equipped to handle amidst the suffering. It's the finding of God. Just knowing you're with me is the game changer. That's what we human beings need. And that's, I think, the meaning of the first answer. It's the question at the burning bush as we interpreted it based on the inter passage studies of our parsha. We might not know why the Jewish people are suffering, but we have a first answer, how to find God. Open his eyes, feel his presence, find the little ways you could discern his presence, including things as small as your nail care. Eka, Asher Eka, that is the first answer. And there's a second answer. Hashem gives Moshe at the burning bush to this question of what is my name, which, again, as per our interpretation, is really the question, how can we deal with God? How could we conceptualize God on this day we're suffering? Hashem says, you know what my name is? I am Hashem, Elokei Avraham, Elokei Avoseichem, Elokei Avraham, Elokei Yitzchak, Elokei Yaakov. I'm the God of your fathers, the God of your ancestors. What does he mean with that? What is the significance of knowing Hashem to be the God of our ancestors? And how does it respond to the question, where is God in Auschwitz? And I think the answer is, the God of our ancestors means our associations with Hashem and Yiddishkeit, which predate us. The notion of Misora, 
that Yiddishkeit has that comforting feel, that foundational feel, that it's something larger than me. I didn't find God for myself, because if I found God for myself, my conception of Hashem might be shaken by the vicissitudes I face. But the knowledge it's the God of my forefathers. Hashem predates me, and Jewish conception of Hashem predates me, goes back to the Abbas Neimos, means that Hashem is a bedrock which I can deal with whatever I face. Because this has been the God of Israel for time immemorial, and Jews have always found a way to connect to him wherever they find themselves, because he's larger than us in our individual lives. And that's deeply comforting. And once again, I think of a Holocaust reminiscing I once heard. And this I heard from a Hasidashiyid when he was talking about his father, a Holocaust survivor. And he said after the war, he doesn't think his father really intellectually had the ability to deal with Hashem. But he still found Hashem in maintaining the Mesorah of his parents, continuing to observe the Yiddishkeit of his parents pre-war, that's what connected him. I think there was a lot more going on there than simply the Yid crazed for cultural connection. I'm like, no, this was a way of finding Hashem. There's a finding Hashem in terms of reconnecting to the God of our Avos. And all the comfort... And all of the, the sense of nurturance from our parents and the Yiddishkeit of our parents, which that evokes. That's what the God of our fathers means. And that's what sustained this Yid amidst his suffering. And that's what I think is this answer, Hashem as God of our Avos, is the answer to the question, Mashimo. How do we find Hashem in Auschwitz or Egypt? He doesn't make any sense to me. But clinging on to him as the God of our Avos that is a path forward, how we find Hashem and how Amuna will preserve us from the suffering. So here we have Parsha Shmos, the Parsha of suffering. With all of its different narratives of man questioning God, whether Moshe at the end of the Parsha or Moshe giving voice to the Jewish people's question at the burning bush, it has the meaningful response in it. It, it, it has what we need now on so many different levels, whether the first answer, finding me in your pain, the second answer, think of me as the God of the Avos and all the comfort which that brings. Shmos is giving the thorough, necessary treatment as the model parsha of human suffering, but particularly how to do something positive with it, as much as he might make no sense. And the, the more I gave thought to this thesis that what Parsha Shmos is really about is responding to the question of where is God in Auschwitz without a theological explanation, but giving man the meaning he needs. As conveyed here at the burning bush by the names of God, the pathways to find God in suffering. It crossed my mind, might this be a deeper meaning to the very name of the Parsha, Shemos, names. If the Parsha is 
about finding God's name, Shema. Finding name is how you identify something. Finding a way to identify God, to know him, as I know a person by his or her name. Finding a way to know God under any conditions. Might that be a deeper meaning to the name Shmos itself? And then I found an elegant Midrashic hint, which clued me in Chazal, or reading Shemos that way, the very name Shemos that way. Because the opening Pasuk in our parasha, from where our Pasuk, our parasha derives its name, this is the name, these are the names of the Jewish people descending down to Egypt. Zohar renders midrashically that this word Shemos doesn't simply mean the names of the Jewish people descending down to Egypt, but it means these are the Shemos, these are the names of God descending down with the Jewish people to Egypt. And the Medrash cites a very interesting hint, a very interesting remus to back up that Midrashic read. The Eila Shemos, these are the names of God descending down to Egypt with the Jewish people. It says the word Ve'ela, Vav Aleph Lamed Hey, has the Gematria, the numeric value of 42, which is one of the, one of the major names of God. Ve'ela Shemos, it's Ve'ela, it's godly names descending down to Egypt with us. What does that mean? It's godly names descending down, descending down to Egypt with us. It means this is a story from the get-go of the story, not simply about people descending down to Egypt, but people who are going to find God in Egypt. They're going to be able to identify, give name to God, give find personal relationship, knowledge of God amidst their suffering. That is what the story is all about. As borne out magnificently later in the parasha, when they're going to ask this very question, as Moshe expresses at the burning bush, what is your shmo? What is your name, God? And Hashem says, I'm going to provide you the tools to find my name amidst suffering. As much as here in this parasha, in this phase of suffering, it doesn't make sense, but you could find my name. You could find a way to relate to me, nonetheless. And as with every Torah true revelation, the thread expands. The more we connect dots, the more there are more dots to connect. Because the Elishmos, this 42-letter name of Hashem, appears yet later in our parsha too. There's a particular episode in our parsha, in the height of slavery. This is the story when Moshe is, Moshe, who was reared, of course, in Paro's palace, raised by Bas Paro, the daughter of Paro. Moshe goes out to his people and seeks to become a defender of his people. And he sees an Egyptian beating up an Israelite. He sees one of his people is accosted by a Egyptian taskmaster. And we know Moshe was not a pacifist by any means. Moshe believed in looking out for his people. Moshe strikes down the aggressor. And this, of course, 
created problems for Moshe because they, Moshe was squealed on to Paro and that's when Moshe had to escape. We know the story. Well, Medrash, as cited by Rashi, teaches us, based on various Midrashic indications, how did Moshe kill the Egyptian? Not with a sword, not with a spear, but Shahar Gobashain. He killed the Egyptian by enunciating the name of God, utilizing some sort of Kabbalistic metaphysical technique, saying the name of Hashem with certain meditative focuses, knocked out the aggressor. Now here it's already interesting. It already piques our interest to notice the name of God, finding God in suffering, happens to creep up again. With all the other references to the name of Hashem, the shame of Hashem amidst suffering, from the first Pusk in the parishes read by the Zohar, to our treatment of the Jewish people's question at the burning bush, it is the name appearing yet again. Certainly no coincidence. But here's the kicker. Commentary cite from the Arizal, a Kabbalist who would know a thing or two about Shemos Hashem and the meditative focuses which Moshe's using. He says, you know which name it was that Moshe uttered when he killed the Egyptian? The 42-letter name of Hashem. Well, this is amazing. Because the 42-letter name of Hashem is, of course, what the Zohar traced in the beginning of our parasha, Ve'ela. Ve'ela Shemos. Ve'ela Begematria Arba Mushtayim 42. It is the same name of God heading down to the Jewish people in Egypt, which, so to speak, symbolically, which is what Moshe is using to kill the Egyptian. You know what that represents? You know what that means more than simply a cutesy pattern? There's a symbolism here. There's an idea with gravitas and authority here. What the parsha is whispering between the lines is the ability to find God in suffering. As we said before, has a lot to do with simply finding his presence, simply noticing there's hashkacha, he's with us, as much as things make no sense. That's the game changer. Even small successes, and think Rebetzin Volb and her nails, that is how you find the Ve'elish Mos. Well, here, Moshe by no means took the Jewish people out of Egypt. He simply struck down one Egyptian aggressor by uttering this name. Certainly he's not dealing with the underlying problem. But what he saw in that moment of temporal, relatively speaking, minimal success, of an ability to, to defend one Jew from one aggressive individual, one aggressive episode, Hashem is here as represented by this 42-letter name of Hashem, which is surfacing here, this Ve'elishmo's name. And my friends, I would like to suggest that all of us, as we're living our Galias, our Mitzrayims, and we don't get it, it doesn't make sense, we could use the small successes as religiously, as spiritually powerful moments I see you're here, Hashem, and that's really all that matters. And now I can cling on tight. Now I can hold on tight. Now I have the 
spiritual stamina, the character stamina to do it, amuna. And I would like to suggest finally, really coming full circle, returning to the beginning of our presentation as we develop the Ramchal's idea and how it can be traced in this juxtaposition of Shmos, our parasha of suffering with Va'era, next parasha of salvation. Shmos has a parasha of suffering which provides the suffering man what he needs, not the answers of a God who makes sense, but the Ve'ela Shmos, a God who's present. I'd like to suggest the parish is directing us to the realization. You cling on tight to the God who doesn't make sense to you, and he doesn't need to make sense to you when you're in the Shmos world, when you're in the suffering world. You cling on to God simply as present. That's what you need to do to eventually merit finding the God at the time of the Geula when the time comes. When suddenly it's all going to make sense somehow, some way, it's all going to come together. And the clue in the text is as follows, and we'll conclude with this. We trace throughout our parasha of Shamos the names of God as finding a God, though he doesn't make sense in Mitzrayim, but a God who's present. Next week's parasha, Vaera, the parasha of salvation, begins also with the name of Hashem, but a different name of Hashem. Next week's parasha will begin with the statement, Ushmi Hashem lo nodati lahem, lachein amar lebnei Yisrael ani yudkei vavkei. My name, yudkei vavkei, has not been revealed yet. But now at the time of redemption, yudkei vavkei is going to be revealed. Rashi says that means Yudke Vavke means the God who keeps his promise. Hashem is saying, you're right. Till now I have seemingly not kept my promises. Man doesn't know me as Yudke Vavke. Now I am going to reveal a new name. You will see that I'm God who comes through for you. No coincidence that following Parsha Shmos, which is a Parsha all about the names of God, finding God when he doesn't make sense to us, then leads into next week's Parsha, which is also about the names of God. But finding a God we can deal with, a God who's coming through for us. The juxtaposition, I believe, is indicating it's the same Hashem. We go through periods in our life knowing the Hashem of Elishmos, knowing the Hashem who doesn't make sense to us, but he's present. And then we, holding on tight, we make it. We make it to the next period. There's a new name of God. Suddenly God does make sense. It's Yudke Vavke. Two parashios about the names of God. Two parashios about identifications of God, i.e. man's ability to find God, juxtaposing each other in validation of the fact that we find Hashem in different ways depending on our situation. And there's different expectations of us, and we ought to have different expectations of ourselves, how we're going to find Hashem in different situations. 
when we're living the Shmos experience, when life is tough, don't try to make sense of God. And don't try quick fix theological explanations for what can't be explained. That, that, that's not where you're at. That's not what your avod is. It's clinging on, knowing he's present. And then will come the period, also the names of God, but a different name of Hashem. You'll find him as Yudkevavke, and suddenly it will make sense, as we began this year, when the wicked witch melts away, not slain, but simply melts away. At the time of Galula, suddenly it all, it all comes together, somehow, someway, and we've all been there in small ways, in ways which we, we can never explain amidst the suffering, amidst the troubles in life. How is it going to make sense? But suddenly things somehow come together, and when it comes together, we don't have that questions, that, those questions anymore. Right? We, we segue like that. We swing like that. And we ought to swing like that. We have a firm swing which swings with us, and that is Hashem. It is the same Hashem. Sometimes the swing is crooked, sometimes the swing is straight, sometimes the swing is advancing. So different names will be utilized. And that is, I think, the magic of the story, Shmos and Ve'eris seen this way. All as a story of names, different names in Gullus, different names in Geula, but coming together all as a story of names. All of a story finding God in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. May we all merit face, that as we face down challenges in life, we hold on to the faith, and find the God of Elishmos. We have a palpable sense of Hashem's presence and love as much as we might not understand. And with that merit, that it be revealed oh so soon, Yud Kevavke, the God who comes through with his promises, when suddenly it just all comes together and realize it was the same God all along and feel so validated that we held on tight we held on tight to that swing as it swung back and forth. Thank you all very much. Any questions?